Tēnā koutou, no mai haida mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning, it's still stuck. The bow's in Asia and the stern is in Africa. But what will the Suez Canal blockage mean for global trade? Then, the government takes a policy punt on New Zealand's raging housing market. And what we as a government want, and I think what a lot of New Zealanders are telling us they want, is that first home buyers get a fairer go. Plus, has COVID-19 contributed to an increase in racism against Asian New Zealanders? Stop Asian hate! Stop Asian hate! Stop Asian hate! Stop Asian hate! We'll get to that issue shortly. But first up this morning, the story causing collective astonishment around the world. For five days now, the 400-metre-long Ever Given has been wedged across the narrow Suez Canal, causing a literal jam and one of the world's most important shipping routes. It is inspiring plenty of jokes online, but it has massive implications for global security and trade. Sal Mercogliano is a maritime historian at Campbell University in North Carolina, and Sal is with us this morning. Kia ora, Sal. Thanks for being with us on Q&A. Could you start by giving us an update on the latest in terms of the rescue and salvage operation? Uh, right now, as we speak, uh, the Egyptians and the salvers are trying to pull the vessel off. Uh, the attempt is going on during the high tide. They've been trying to do that every 12 hours on these high tides. The tides are increasing. Uh, they'll reach their peak here at the end of the month. And so that's a goal they're really trying to hit. What we're seeing, but is that's going to be a pretty much a, a very difficult affair. I had an opportunity to sit down with a master salver and talk to him about that. And his prospects were not very good. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. You've been speaking with Nick Sloan, who was the master salver in charge of the Costa Concordia operation. From what he's seen for this operation, what's his analysis? Yeah, uh, we had a great opportunity to talk with uh, Nick uh, Sloan. Uh, the, the, the piece is up on GCAP right now. But one of the things he says is, you know, this is a vessel that most people can't fathom the size of. You're talking about four, 400 metres 60 meters across. The vessel's 220,000 tons, and it ran into Asia at about 13 knots. Uh, and, and the amount of dirt it just displaced when it went ashore is twice the size of the vessel itself. And the bow of the vessel is physically up on, on, on ground. It, it, you can see parts of the hull that you normally don't see. The vessel's hull has been compromised forward. Uh, she, that came from the, the vessel operator. The vessel's leaking up forward, so they need to bring in some pumps for it. And her stern is hanging up, as you mentioned before, in Africa. And that places a huge what's called longitudinal stress, these burdens on the vessel. And the concern is the vessel could break apart if you don't salve her right. And going fast is not what salvers like to do. Mm. Of course, there are massive time pressures. Uh, the latest numbers we have um, show more than 300 ships are waiting to pass through the canal at the moment, despite uh, the salvage efforts, which have seen 20,000 tonnes of sand removed so far and all of those tugboats trying to shift the ship at the moment. They haven't been successful. A short while ago, the head of the Suez Canal Authority, Osama Rabi, said conditions were not the main reason for this grounding. From what we know then, how did this happen? Well, there's two competing views. There was uh, the issue that the uh, company says 
that high winds are a responsibility for it. There was an early report by the ship's agent that the ship had lost power. But a vessel this size in a very narrow seaway, where she is, is the narrowest part of the Suez Canal, from the Great Bitter Lake south, is the narrowest part. She only has a few, you know, maybe 100, not even 100 meters across buffer right there. And what was clear from her track line is she got a little bit close to the west side. And what tends to happen in a vessel that size, believe it or not, is you create a, an effect called suction, and then the vessel the, wants to kind of pull toward it. And what we saw was maybe due to wind, maybe because of this suction that was being caused, the vessel veered hard to the right. What are the immediate implications for global trade? Well, I think the immediate implications you're seeing right now is, is fuel prices beginning to spike right now, 3% at last count right now. You're going to start seeing some shortages as the vessels pile up and that anchorage south of uh, Suez gets bigger and bigger. Items that would, should be on the shelves and in the hands of manufacturers is not going to get there. We live in a society today all across the world where we expect our deliveries to be just in time. And unfortunately, when you disrupt that just in time, you see disruptions, very similar to what happened when China mm. shut down early in 2020. 12% of global trade passes through the Suez Canal. I see Lloyds of London estimates uh, every hour that uh, the canal is blocked costs uh, about half a billion dollars worth of goods are blocked uh, from being traded. Are countries like New Zealand, which don't rely as much on the Suez Canal for oil, likely to feel the impacts of this? Oh, I think you will, because any impact in the global trade market eventually kind of butterflies affect its way down. So one of the things you're about to see, for example, we know this is happening because the parent company of Evergreen has started to reroute their ships around Africa. That's a clear indication to me that they know this is going to take a long time. Because of those extended sea routes, it's going to take more ships to supply Europe. That may mean the diversion of vessels that may be traveling to New Zealand, for example. It may mean slowdown of travel going forward. You slow down travel to New Zealand, for example, you're going to have an issue with piles up of empty containers. You may have not have as many exports or imports coming in, and that's going to be felt in the pocketbooks of everyone around the world, not just in Europe and Asia, but also in New Zealand. Are there security implications as well? Well, obviously, there's a huge em emphasis on this because you've cut the main waterway between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Right now, an American carrier battle group is in each of those oceans. But should there be a need to swing forces there, they can't do that. The British, the Germans, the French were planning to send forces to South China Sea. You've now added week to two weeks in some cases to get vessels there should something happen in the immediate proximity of New Zealand or Australia, for example. Sal, you yourself are a former mariner. You've passed through the canal several times over the years. Can you talk us through the calculus that global shipping companies will be making at the moment when it comes to waiting for this blockage to be cleared or rerouting their ships around Africa? Well, you know, there's a very interesting element here because this is international affairs and, and, and you have a very international group involved in this. You know, you have a Taiwanese ship with a Panamanian flag, with an Indian crew, with a German owner, and, a you know, it, so you get a lot of elements at play here. Ships are rerouting, but you're going to have ships still continually going to the Suez because they want to drop the anchor in Egyptian waters so that they can file insurance claims saying that they were delayed by this ship. So companies are going to be very interesting in how they play this out going forward. Companies are already rerouting. We see that happening. But at the same time, companies want to make the claim that they're delayed so that they can get money from the P&I insurance, the protective and indemnity insurance of the ever kind. What does this say about the fragility of global trade? 
Well, I think one of the things it says is how much we don't pay attention to really maritime global trade. We take it for granted. You know, we take things, many things for granted every day. Everybody gets in their automobile and they don't check the tires, they don't check the brakes, they just take it for granted and off they go. You would never do that in an airplane. But we do this with shipping. We, we can guarantee that ships are going to arrive and deliver our goods. But again, what we, this demonstrates is how easy it is to plug the gap between one of the major trade routes across the world. We use a phrase in, in maritime lexicon called maritime choke points. And you're seeing right now a choke point, and this is what it's doing. It's choking the trade between Europe and Asia. The Ever Given is 400 meters long, 60 meters wide, 200,000 tons when it's loaded. Is global shipping infrastructure appropriately set up to handle these mega ships? Well, Ever Given is a result of a prior closing of the Panama Canal, uh, excuse me, of the Suez Canal. When it closed in 1968 for eight years, the maritime industry responded by building bigger ships. The Egyptians responded by widening the canal. And, you know, unfortunately, in our society we live in, we want goods transported to us with very little cost. And the way you get little cost in global transportation is you do an economy of scale. It's better to use one massive large container ship than two or three smaller container ships. 1950, the world shipped a half a billion tons of cargo on the world's oceans. Today, we ship over 11 billion tons. It increases exponentially, and to meet that need, you have to increase the size of vessels exponentially. Mm. Sal, I know you've been monitoring the situation in Egypt around the clock. From the information you have available at the moment, to the best of your knowledge, what's likely to happen from this point on? I think you're seeing right now vessels start to reroute. I think you're going to start seeing the, the big indication coming up is when those vessels and those anchorages in the north and south of the Suez Canal start upping anchors and going around. I think they're waiting until this, this spring tide that's going to hit on the end of March. And if they don't get an indication that the, the vessel is going to be able to move, you're going to see a massive rerouting around the canal. Now, again, you know, the vessel could be moved and you could free it up. But based on the intelligence I have and based on the people I talked with, it doesn't look like that's going to happen in the near time. And so what we're going to see is kind of almost the impact that we're seeing in the United States with vessels lined up off ports waiting to offload. It's going to be a drought for a while, and then all of a sudden the monsoon's going to hit, and you're going to have backlog. Mm. All right. We will continue to monitor it. It's fascinating. Thank you so much for your time and expertise, Sal. We really appreciate it. That's Sal Mercogliano, who's a maritime historian at Campbell University in North Carolina. After the break on Q&A, will the government's housing announcement cool the market? The famous silver bullet doesn't exist for housing, so we've put forward a package of measures and we will continue to do work on housing. This is not the be-all and end-all, but I think it is a pretty significant package of investments. Hōki mai te welcome back to Q&A. Their ability, or otherwise, to deal with the housing crisis will be one of the measures that defines Jacinda Ardern's government. Three years ago, Labor was elected on big promises to resolve the crisis. Since then, Real Estate Institute data shows the median New Zealand house price has increased 47%. The government hopes the new changes announced this week will make a difference and tilt the balance away from investors towards first-home buyers. But what will the changes actually achieve? And what even constitutes an affordable house in New Zealand? I sat down with Finance Minister Grant Robertson and asked him about the timing of these changes. 
Well, we've been acting on housing throughout uh, our time in government, but clearly the second half of last year saw a totally unsustainable rise in house prices, uh, and we felt that it was necessary to take bold action. Um, we recognise that this is a big, complex, long-standing issue for New Zealand, where no one single intervention, the famous silver bullet, doesn't exist for housing. So we've put forward a package of measures, and we will continue to do work on housing. This is not the be-all and end-all, but I think it is a pretty significant package of investments. The failure to tackle demand for housing or seriously add supply won't fix the housing crisis and its threat to financial stability. That was your criticism of the national government five years ago. We can't sit around and let the housing crisis get worse and worse. Those were your words in 2017. Kiwi Build was a disaster, at least in its early iterations. The national median house price has increased 47% since you took over. Why will this be different? Well, I think this is a package that gets at both demand and supply, and I do think that's really important. Um, obviously, by making a move like um, limiting and removing interest deductibility, will, we think, have a significant uh, tilting of the balance towards first-home buyers. Uh, the package that we've uh, put in place for our Housing Acceleration Fund is a $3.8 billion package as grants, not loans, which is what's been done before. Councils tell us that's the most important thing we can do to help them add to supply. So I think the scale of the interventions is, is at a level that I think appropriate and also the breadth of them. The point is you've been making these promises for years now. I mean you were elected on a promise to tackle the housing crisis. You've been in the role for three and a half years and your government has overseen the single largest and fastest increase in house costs in recent New Zealand history. Yeah, let's take ourselves back to the middle of 2020 where we were being told by virtually every economist in New Zealand that house prices would go down as a result of COVID-19. Now the opposite occurred and the opposite occurred in a wholly unsustainable way and we are acting in response to that. But in our first term of government we also launched the biggest building of state houses and acquiring of state houses that we have seen by any government since the 1970s. We've changed rental laws. We've made sure that we're actually getting people able to live in warm dry homes. So it is a program of work but I come back to my very first point. It is a long-standing challenge. You're right. Oppositions and governments going back over decades have been saying we need to do more. We are doing more. My question, though, is why will this be different? Because, I mean, in, in that period in which you were in government leading up to COVID-19, up to March of last year, house prices nationwide increased 26% at the median level. So none of those measures came anywhere close to solving the housing crisis that you were elected by criticising. Yeah, yeah, but look, one of the things we all know, particularly when it comes to measures like supply, is that they do take time. It does take time to build those houses. Actually solving the problem of the underlying infrastructure, the pipes, the roads, the drains that we need, is absolutely critical. But we all know that's not going to happen incredibly quickly. There are other measures within what we announced, within that package, that can uh, have an impact more quickly. But I come back. Long-standing, big, complex challenge that requires sustained investment over many years. OK, then, let's, let me ask some really basic questions. What will the package that you announced this week do to house prices? 
Well, that in the end is not something I can personally predict or dictate. What I can say, though, is that the unsustainable house price rises we've seen, we hope this package will play a role in stopping. It will put downward pressure on those on those prices. I absolutely accept that. But house prices are dictated by a range of factors that the government doesn't control as well. Low interest rates. Um, we have advice. We have advice what across. Advice we actually have. No, but what does this advice say that this package will do to house prices? It, it's actually varied. The, the reason I was laughing is it's varied the advice we've got. Officials themselves are saying we can't be 100% sure of what will happen here. And that, that's a reasonable thing for them to say. What I can say is what we are hoping to do here is shift the balance so that we've got more first-time buyers coming in to the market and fewer speculators and investors and giving more people a chance to get in and create more supply. All of those things, we think, will have a downward pressure effect on the unsustainable price rises we've seen. But to ask me to put a number on no, it... No, that's not what like I'm asking. I, I, no, but I mean, it's, it's very reasonable to ask what impact this will have on yeah. house prices, if that is the target. It's reasonable to ask what impact this will have on rent. And it is. It is reasonable. And again... What impact will this have on rent? That is highly contested territory, because rents are not just made up from the initiatives that we've taken. So rents are a product of demand and supply. We are using this package to try and shift investment towards more supply. So bear in mind, people are exempt from the extension to Brightline or from the loss of interest deductibility if they're building new properties. So we're trying to get more supply into that market. Um, so rentals are also covered by people's ability to pay as well. Yeah. And so the, this is part of that package. But I can't predict today exactly what will happen with rents. And actually, our advisors have different views on that. Well. So, so why did you make this decision? Why would you support this package? If you can't say what it'll do to house prices, you can't say with any certainty what it'll do to rents. Well, I did say before when we were talking about house prices, we believe that the rises that we've seen over recent months are unsustainable, and we believe this package will contribute to stopping those kinds of rises. So that's downward pressure on house prices. When it comes to rents, there are a multiplicity of factors there, and what we're saying here is we'll keep an eye on that, as we have throughout our period of time in government, but nobody can say with absolute certainty what it will do. Whose advice are you acting on? Um, we're acting on, I mean, we listen to all the advice we get. So the Treasury came through and there were some things that we agreed with and some we didn't. We had the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development and we had the range of external advisors. Who has recommended that you make these changes? Cabinet has agreed to them. No, I know Cabinet has agreed to them, but who actually supported them? Who are the advisors that supported these changes? Because it's not the IRD and it's not Treasury. <laughs> not when it comes to the issue necessarily of interest deductibility. What our officials said more, there was... More to the extension I'll, I'll come to the bright line in a second. But what our advisors said around interest deductibility was they were unsure and they wanted to do more work. We felt we needed to act and we believe that in principle it is a good decision to help shift the balance more towards first home buyers. When it comes to the Bright Line extension, we had a range of advice. We had up to 20 years as being the Treasury's one. We think we struck the right balance, but Jack, ultimately it's up to us as politicians to make these decisions. We'll get advice, we've listened to that, but we're also acutely aware that New Zealanders, as you've been saying, want us to act on housing. You've asked me that question time and time again when we've had interviews over the years, we've got to put a package together I think will make a difference. Yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm really intrigued where this advice is coming from because the, the, the advice that's been made available through the policy impact statements clearly shows that officials at the IRD and Treasury have not recommended these changes. You tell me you can't say with any certainty what this package is going to do for house prices or for rental prices in New Zealand. So I'm really intrigued to know who is the person who says these are the changes we need when you 
is Minister sign them off? Cabinet is that group, and ministers have taken decisions here that we believe are the right ones to make a difference. I will pull you up, though. I have said part of this package is to make sure we don't see those unsustainable house price rises. So it will have a downward pressure effect Sustained on that. moderation. Uh, it will have a downward pressure effect on those very, very extreme price rises that we've seen. Also, though, we do want to tip the balance towards first-home buyers. We do want to make sure it's easier for, for those young couples, those individuals, to mm. be able to buy their home. Therefore, we had to take actions that would help with that. That also includes the changes around the price and home loan caps as well. In, in just a minute. Why didn't Treasury have time to pull together advice on the deductibility changes? Yeah, well, we started that conversation with them, I think, in the middle of November. It wasn't too long after we were sworn in as a government anyway. Um, they went away, you know, over Christmas time with that there. We came back and started to shape the package up. Part of it is because they and the IR are now going to do this, and then Revenue are now going to do this, is for the detail of interest deductibility, we now go out to consider. So we've made the overarching decisions, but some of the, the smaller kind of ways that interest deductibility might interact with Bright Line, um, just getting the detail of that right, that now we go Four and consult on. Well, to... you know, the Treasury, they, they give the advice that they give to me, and their advice was that they wanted to do more work on it. We will now effectively do that work via the consultation process. But the counterfactual is true. On one hand, people are saying go, go faster. On other hand, people are saying have every detail worked out. We had to to make some decisions and we've made them. What happens if someone has a mortgage over new and existing property? Yeah, and that's one of the issues that we need to go away and look at now is what happens with mixed titles. Um, there's several other... Farm and a rental property. Well, in terms, you're talking about deductibility yeah, yeah. here, yeah. And that is exactly what we've now got to be able to disentangle. Um, and that's a matter of detail. I mean, we can take the principal decision that we want to remove the loophole. Then you go and say, well, there's always going to be a circumstance here or a circumstance there. So, so this doesn't get fully designed until by the 1st of October. People who look at this and say, OK, there is actually very limited detail around some of these big points. You have been in government for three and a half years. You have overseen an incredible increase in value of house of the median house price in New Zealand. Why haven't you worked out this detail before now? With respect, with respect, Jack, that is a matter of detail. And you've obviously you know, read the reports from, from the officials. They want to go away and do more work on that. So do we. But, but it's important. But to you could have presented this to them before November. You didn't have to wait for COVID-19. Well, we weren't actually elected. I don't think I was sworn in until the last 6th of, six of November. You were in government. Yeah, yeah, but that wasn't on the programme of the last government, but it is on the programme of this one. So my point is that the house price rises of 26% in your first two years of your first term weren't enough to convince you that this kind of action was required. Well, it certainly wasn't in the work programme of the previous government. Obviously, we had a coalition government where a lot of what we agreed was done first, and then we had to negotiate policies piece by piece. But again... The last half of last... And I respect what you're saying about what had happened up until COVID, but the last half of last year was, the, you know, an unsustainable and unpredicted set of house price rises, and we've acted swiftly in response to that. But, yes, of course, we need to do some more work on the detail of how the policy will work in practice, and we're doing that in consultation with the very people who are asking those questions. What is the purpose of extending the Bright Line test when your own tax working group said it would have limited effect on housing affordability and Treasury officials have recommended different... Well, what was important for us was making sure that we, you know, those people who do perhaps have a single property that they bought and it's part of their retirement plan, essentially, they're, they're going to keep their house for well beyond 10 years in most cases. But where people are moving in a market to make the most of 
change market conditions simply to make a profit on that, that then fits with the original purpose of the Bright Line test, which is all about intention, remember. And the National Party said, well, we're going to create a Bright Line test that has two years. We said that doesn't seem quite right to us. We'll make it five. We've now looked at some of the data around how, how often houses change hands. and Unfortunately, we don't collect disaggregated data between the home you own and, a, and, a, and an investment property. But we set that as about the level that we thought um, represented those who were potentially looking to move inside a market for capital gain rather than holding on to a property for a longer term. Can you point me to advice that says extending the bright line from five to ten years will put, put downward pressure on house prices? Oh, I mean, there's advice about extending the bright line test generally doing no, that for ten years. Look, there was, there was a variety of advice. I'm not sure if that specific bit exists. Um, Twenty years was regarded as being one option for that. We just think we've got the balance about right with but the it. Point is, the point is, if the goal is to bring house prices down or at least get this period of sustained moderation that you've been talking about for a long time now, your own officials are saying this is not the way to do it. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that. What it is is that there is no one thing, and that's the whole point. There is no silver bullet on this. It's part of a whole package. And ultimately, um, you know, we could just have our officials decide policy, but that's not how things work in a democracy. We're elected to do this. We are very aware that things went in the opposite direction in 2020 from what was predicted, and therefore we've put this package together. When was the last time you went to an open home? I've been to an open home for a very long time. The limits for the first home support in Wellington, to take uh, Wellington as an example now, with the extensions that you're providing in this package, uh, would allow first home buyers to buy uh, an existing build for $550,000. Could you point me to any existing builds yeah, for $550,000? We, we, we didn't make these numbers up. They are based on the core logic data for March for the median of the lower quartile of housing. So these are starter homes. That's always been the case when it's a first-home grant scheme. So we're not, we're not inventing the number. This is actual data that says this is the median price within that lower quartile. So we will continue to try and find the best possible data to indicate that, but we have to base it on something, and that core logic data is the best data to base it on. We could, of course, set it at a million dollars, but then we would be setting people up to fail because you still have to think about the serviceability of a mortgage within that environment. And if we had the price at that level, then I think we'd have a lot of people who would struggle. This term, sustained moderation, what does it mean? Well, to me, what that means is not seeing the unsustainable house prices we've seen. But so house prices stay the same, about the same? It, what it means is that we don't see those big, big jumps in house prices. But come back to my very first answer, we are not the only factor in that. Low interest rates, which I don't control, that's controlled by the Reserve Bank. There are other factors that come in on that. But we cannot go on with the kind of rises we saw. We will continue with the Finance Minister next. Remember, you can let us know your thoughts on Twitter at NZQ&A or by emailing us, Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Hey, our Q&A, we'll be back in a moment. Ten Koto, welcome back to Q&A. The house price-to-income ratio is a simple internationally recognised measure of housing affordability. The median multiple, as it's also known, it's pretty straightforward. You compare median house prices to median household incomes. You want houses to be affordable for the average New Zealander. What does that mean? And perhaps as a measure, we can use the median house price to median household income, which I know uh, the World Bank yep. says should be about three to one. 
At, would you disagree? What, 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 well, there, are there are a lot of different. There are a lot of different ideas. So, so right at the moment, it's right at the moment, it's about eight to one in New Zealand, and that to me is is too high. And eleven to one in Auckland. Yeah, yeah. So no, so on what average, the, what's affordable? What's yeah, affordable? look, I, again, I know you want me to give you a number. No, that that is a reasonable thing to yeah, ask. That is a that is. I a would really like to see it come down from eight, absolutely. To what? Well, let's see how we go with these policies. Three to one and five to one are numbers that I've heard have you know varying levels of stress on people's income. What I'm saying is let's bring it down from eight. But but what is affordable? Give me a number for, but, for how we should... No, but Jack, it's, a, but Jack, but Jack it's a ratio. Okay. It's a ratio that includes incomes as well. And we want to see incomes rise as well as house prices moderate and make sure that we can bring that yes, back I'm in. I'm sure you have a number here. I don't. This is, this is, is an internationally recognised ratio. And as I've said, I've heard numbers five to one, I've heard three to one as being reasonable. So, Eight to one is not sustainable and we don't want that. Okay, so, so if, if we achieve a period of of sustained moderation. House prices are more or less the same for a while. Incomes in New Zealand increase at, say, 4% a year. How long will it take for the average New Zealander to be able to afford a home at a ratio of 5 to 1? It will take a considerable length of time if we keep those variables in the way that you've said that. We are not the only factor in what decides that. And I'm not setting a particular price for housing. I'm setting the conditions up where first home buyers get a much fairer go in the market, where we increase the supply of housing, which is another factor that goes into this. Jack, no government can promise you specific numbers like that because they but don't... The finance minister can tell me what an affordable house is. No, because an affordable house varies from where you live um, to the circumstances that you're the, in. That's why we that's use why median I, house price versus median household income. And that's why I've said to you eight to one is not sustainable, and I'd like to see it come so down from there. We're not going to put a number on that at the moment. Sorry to not give you that this morning. Let's talk about language. You said in an interview with News Hub the other day that if landlords increased rents as a result of some of these changes, renters will, quote, look elsewhere. What did you mean by that? No, well, I don't think that's a fair characterisation of what that is? at all. No, I just want to address that specific yeah, issue because I was asked about a, a very particular example of a particular landlord who would raise rents by $150 a week as a result of, the, of these uh, decisions. That's frankly ridiculous. Firstly, because we're phasing in the interest deductibility, so actually it's over four uh, tax years. What I meant by that was, again, that rents and what people can pay for rents are determined by a number of factors. They're determined by demand and supply, people's ability to pay. I suggested that it may be the case that that particular tenant may look to see if they can rent somewhere else. I'm, of course, aware that it's really tight for people in the rental market at the moment. But that particular landlord doing that actually possibly isn't even legal. And those tenants should go to the tenancy tribunal because that would be lifting uh, their rent well above the market rate. You've used the term loophole to describe the interest deductibility changes, but this is how most businesses calculate taxable income. If this is a loophole, Will you stop all businesses from deducting interest and borrowing costs from their revenue? No, we won't do that. The loophole aspect here is about within property. So as owner-occupiers, you don't have the privilege of interest deductibility, whereas those who are investors or speculators do. So, no, so within property, it is a loophole, and it's a loophole that we're closing. We are not proposing to do that in any other sector. I mean, but by the same principle, if I were to buy a computer for personal use at home versus buying a computer for business purposes, I could reasonably expect to deduct interest from that, and that wouldn't be a loophole. Yeah. 
but it is a loophole with respect to property. This does come back to quite a fundamental principle here about what we as New Zealanders want in terms of housing and our housing market. And what we as a government want, and I think what a lot of New Zealanders are telling us they want, is that first home buyers get a fairer go. That actually, yes, there will be people who invest in the market and they have rental properties, but we shouldn't set up advantages within what is something that is so intrinsic to who we are as people. Okay, one last language question. You as Finance Minister ruled out changes to the Brightline test. You were elected on that promise. Why not just own it? Instead of this too definite spin, no. why not just say, you know what, conditions have changed. I know I was elected on that promise, but this is this is the environment in which we Look, we did not have a plan to do this at the election. I absolutely accept that. Um, in the circumstances of the second half if of that. Now, can I finish? I mean, you could. You had opportunity to change that before <laughs> the election. <laughs> Just let me finish. So, we did not have a plan to say we're going to increase or extend the bright line test, given that we were getting advice as we were setting our policy that house prices were going down. The Labor Party's policy didn't rule out doing it. It didn't rule out changing existing measures. So therefore, I was too definite in that interview when I said no. The policy we took to the people of New Zealand didn't rule it out. What it did say was that we were going to address the housing crisis. So, yep, I got that wrong. I was too definite. But actually, I think what we've done now is the responsible thing to do now that we've seen what's actually happened with house prices. How will we know if this is working? We're going to have more first-home buyers. The percentage of first-home buyers versus investors will be higher. We're going to know that it's working when we see supply increase, and that is such an important part of both parts of this package. We're going to see more apprentices in place, because that's a big part of the package we put forward to. So you'll be able to see these. And we measure housing affordability, we measure uh, the number of renters, we measure the number of first-time buyers. So there are a lot of measures that exist, and of course we'll be judged on that. But again, this is one of the biggest, longest-standing challenges in New Zealand society. This will take time, but these measures will make a difference. And clearly, you are hoping that New Zealanders who are in a position whereby they can call upon resources will look to invest in more productive measures. Where should Kiwis with money put their money? Well, here's a start. People could put their money into building new houses because actually, if they do that, they won't be subject to the Bright Line extension and they won't be losing their interest deductibility. And we will see construction and we will... Is access. that locked in? Yes, of course it is. Those changes are locked in. I thought you were consulting on those changes. We're consulting on the, the detail of interest deductibility. We're not consulting on whether or not there will be... For new builds? Yep, new builds are in, new, for both. And that's really important, is that actually here's a chance to invest there. But there are opportunities for people to invest in all sorts of companies and businesses throughout New Zealand. That's Finance Minister Grant Robertson. After the break, our panellists with their thoughts on the government's housing package. What will it mean for the market and what will it mean for the government's support? Hawke Meyer, welcome back to Q&A. Time for our panel now. And here they are, Wellington City Councillor Tamitha Paul, economist Shamabil Yaqub, and One News reporter Katie Bradford, who has been covering the response to the government's housing package. Kia ora koutou, thanks for being here. Tamitha, I'll start with you this morning. What is your response to the government's housing package? So I think it took me a while to figure out what exactly it means for me as a young person, as a renter, um, somebody living in the capital city. Um, and once I got down into the detail, I was kind of underwhelmed because I don't think there is a lot for me. And I thought about the fact that 
in our government we have more Māori, uh, Pacific, migrant and refugee uh, members of parliament than we've ever had in our history. And I ask myself, what does this package do in response to the urgency that those communities are facing? You know, our families are sleeping in vans. Um, Lambton Quay is flooded with people who are not eligible for transitional housing. Um, and, you know, uh, preventable diseases like rheumatic fever are running rampant in our communities because we can't live in safe and healthy um, housing. So when I look at this package, it doesn't respond to me um, with the crisis that our communities are facing and it doesn't respond to the fact that we have a human rights crisis and it is that there isn't enough housing. So, um, you know, everyone around me, and I'm reading that it's this transformational package, but to me it makes no difference and to um, other renters and other young people, it doesn't make any difference. So I would ask that the government would be more bold and that they would um, make changes that they know that they can make regardless of what landlords say, regardless of if they throw their toys mm. in order to actually make a difference on the people who are being hurt the most, which are um, working people, young people, renters, students, um, all of those communities. Shamabil, what did you make of the package? Well, I think it was tactical. So they had to buy time because house prices are doing this, the politics is getting really nasty. Um, so from that perspective, I think what it does is it takes a very ballsy move of attacking investors. And they, they label them speculators, but really it's the investor market that they're going after. Something that really hasn't happened in New Zealand ever. Mm. So this is quite a big deal. The other thing that, that they do is the stuff around new supply. So tilting everything towards new supply, the infrastructure funding, these are all stop gaps. The stuff we need, the reforms on RMA, the reforms on infrastructure financing, all those things still need to be done. So the boldness and urgency you talk about, that's where that has to be. Mm -hmm. This stuff wasn't about boldness and urgency. This is band-aids to make sure we don't see house prices keeping that sort of you know rocket trajectory. Mm. What did you think of it, Katie? I think it's a lot of tinkering. I think uh, the, the stuff that Shamabil's talking around, about around the RMA, uh, all those things we need to do around infrastructure, all that needed to be happening years ago. And, and this is a result of successive governments failing to be brave enough to do what needs to be done. Labor, as you were saying to Grant Robertson, had three years to do more during their first term in government and just didn't weren't brave enough to take those steps. Steps. They've now acted because of that political pressure that Shem Beale talked about. Mm. But they needed to be doing this. They could have come out in December and done this. I know there was an election. I know there was COVID. But we could see by December just how quickly prices were going up and the impact, the real world impact it's having on people. Mm. Uh, and and the government is only doing it now because, because of that huge pressure on them. A lot of this, I think, they would have liked to keep for the budget, to have as the centrepiece of the budget. That's why we've seen some of the confusion around what's going on there, mm. around things such as whether the interest deductibility will affect new builds and so forth because the government simply weren't ready to go. I'm going to just be really clear on that. So that last question, the uh, last exchange I had with the finance minister, I mean, if you, if you read the policy, which I of course did, it says other than potentially new builds. So it seems likely that new builds are going to be exempt from these deductibility changes. But it, from, from that wording, doesn't seem like it's locked in. And, it, and it has to be locked in, it, though, because yeah. you cannot afford to spook new supply. Mm. I mean, we know that, yes, you can do the stuff on demand, but if we're not building houses, we bag it. Is it a rushed policy? Without a doubt. I mean, you can see from the detail, there's not enough detail. There's still so much work to be done. But I think it was about getting ahead of it and going, creating the uncertainty in the market. In fact, that's working, right? You know, the gnashing of teeth from the landlords' uh, organizations, I think, is a good example of how wired they are. And that's a good thing. It means they're going to be less active in the auctions and in the property market, and that's probably going to help. But the big thing that we need to see is the clarity around these rules and regulations. Um, and my view still is the Reserve Bank really needs to pull finger and get going on the actual lending because if you're not allowed to borrow mm -hmm. lots of money to buy 
very expensive houses, then house prices can't keep going up. And we are expecting some changes to come on that front. Mm -hmm. Katie interviewed the Reserve Bank Governor a couple of weeks ago, so we are expecting some changes there. And I, think, I think we'll see that in the next couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I, I have little doubt that Adrian Orr will move on removing interest-only loans for mm. investors only, which will take, that's going to, I think, be one of the biggest hits to investors mm. um, across the board, because one of the things with the interest deductibility is I think that that's really going to have an impact on those smaller investors, people who own two, three, four homes. Not such an impact on the speculators and the flippers, which mm. I see a lot of in Auckland, that sort of behaviour that's going on. The interest-only loans will have more of an impact on those, and it'll also be interest if interesting if they can work out a way to bring in the debt-to-income limits yeah. without impacting first-time buyers. Tamitha, one of the things to come out of the interview uh, that I thought was interesting was when I asked Grant Robertson what it'll do to house prices, he wouldn't say. When I asked him what it'll do to rent prices, he wouldn't mm -hmm. say. And I know that different economists have different ideas as to what might happen to rents. Are you concerned that investors who own properties that you, your constituents, your friends are renting might look to pass on the costs that they would have been getting back through interest deductibility and increase your rent? Mm. I think just, just looking at the comments from the Minister shows that real disconnection between what they think might happen and what the reality of that is because it seemed like um, the Minister was explaining a logic behind rent price hikes but the reality is, is there is no logic. I remember a couple of years ago uh, the government put student allowances up by $50 and miraculously you know my dump in Brooklyn um, was going to go up by $150 a week and it was three bedrooms, you know, so I don't think there is any rhyme or reason to what landlords are doing and that's what I was looking to see is some restraint on their um, unbridled power on people who actually don't have a lot of power in their everyday lives. So what would that what would that look like? What would those restraints look like? It would be uh, putting a rent cap on um, rent hikes. I think mm. that's the first and foremost thing that needs to happen because like I said, landlords literally will find any reason to increase our rent and we have nothing to do and, and um, the Minister says we can go to the Tenancy Tribunal, nobody goes to the Tenancy Tribunal because first of all a lot of people don't have the resources to understand how to access that but also there are ramifications for going so you'll probably get kicked out, there's lots of ways that the RTA can be used to find a way to kick people out of their homes even if they've done nothing right, even if they've followed every process. A rent freeze is a good idea, Sean? No, I think what we've got in the RTA, the revamped RTA in terms of not being able to mm. increase it more than the market rates is uh, useful. I think the uh, the confusion is that people are buying into the so the hysteria that's coming from the landlording groups. If you look at what's happened in the UK where they have re excluded the interest deductibility, rent inflation hasn't really changed. It's been stable over the course of the last four years. Although there were some other tax changes that accompanied those changes as well. Yeah, and I think, but New Zealand's not so different. We're getting sort of all the kind of um, measures are slowly mm. sort of aligning against that investor group, right? And the question is, will every landlord be worse off? And the answer is no. It's only those people who've bought recently and who have a lot of debt. All the other landlords are probably not going to be affected very much because their cost, their reduction in profit is going to be pretty small. So I suspect there's going to be quite a lot of competition from the, you know, the more experienced long-term landlords who'll be able to um, essentially compete against these highly leveraged new investors. That being said, it's, it's interesting. I know it's just a matter of language, but it has been really interesting to see the likes of David Parker and Grant Robertson repeatedly using this loophole term to describe interest deductibility because I know a lot of landlords will say, well, hang on just a moment. This is how, this is how running a business works. You yeah, deduct your costs from your revenue. Yeah, but I think there's, there's a bit of context here. So for a typical business, interest expenses are 5% of your outgoings. 
for a landlord, the interest payments might be 75% of your outgoings. So the amount of money you can borrow mm -hmm. for an investment property is completely disproportionate to every other business in New Zealand. And we've known that over the course of the last 30 years, more and more mortgage lending has gone, uh, bank mm. lending has gone towards houses and not towards real businesses. So this is, there is actually a problem here in that, but it's not the problem of government. It's actually a problem of the Reserve Bank in the way it regulates the banking system and how it allows them to lend. And I think that stuff has to change. Do you think the government has correctly read the public mood on this, Katie? I think they've been too late. I think what they're doing now is scrambling to get those votes that they were rapidly losing from people mm. who felt like they could have a Labour and Green government and they would act on housing and they would work in their interests. Uh, and, and that just simply hasn't been happening. The, the anger and the fury I've seen from people, particularly in the sort of 20, 30-year-olds who really do feel locked out, people who do feel like they're never going to get a home. And people are looking at buying with friends. They're doing everything. They're not mm -hmm. buying avocado, smashed avocado and coffee. They're doing everything they're told to do. But every single week, it is getting further and further out of their reach. And the anger that those people are feeling is going to hurt Labour. But there's also now the anger. I was on the phone last week to real estate agents, to mortgage brokers, to investors, and they are furious. And a lot of them were also Labour voters. So like, Labour's losing it on both sides at the moment. And that's what they're really going to have to battle in the next couple of years. Tim, so what do you think of that? Um, I, I think it's true because... Um you know, I've always thought of Labour as, as the party that supports working class people and normal people, everyday people, but again, this doesn't seem like a policy and a lot of the movements lately haven't been things that um, that appeal to people like my parents or my grandparents who are in those precarious housing situations that need a bit of support at the moment. So, um, you know, and I think they're at, they're, they've got the most political capital um, that they'll probably have in, uh, while they're in government. And I think they've got the social licence to be able to do something bold for their people. And again, I go back to the fact that we have such a diverse uh, government and that um, those representatives have an obligation to those families who will sleep in vans mm. tonight, who will be sick because of the condition of the housing that they live in, um, and that will be moving around houses because, um, unfortunately, we're just seen as... Um, collateral damage in this um, war between the haves of New Zealand and mm. we're just kind of seen as um, you know something on the side that will be dealt with later. Can I take a, a slightly more cynical <laughs> view than, than the both of you? I think they've read the public mood really well. I think, I think they have sensed that actually they were elected last year with all of these soft Labour voters who'd come across from National and they can sense that even though many of those voters own properties, own multiple properties and are landlords, that a lot of people are pretty uncomfortable with the kind of rises we've seen in the last few months and actually by, by acting in this way, they've done a pretty good job of reading the National mood. Well, I think the, for me the main thing is that you're right in that they've, they've uh, sensed the discomfort. Mm. I think the problem is will the experience of these policies come through fast enough. Mm. If they want to get re-elected at the next election, they need to show that more new housing is being built for people to rent. It has to be social housing. It has to be affordable housing. If these policies don't tilt things towards that and more first-home buyers in the market, I think they would have missed the trick. I think you're right, Jack. I think there is a deep sense of anger even amongst, I think, moderate property owners and landlords that something's not right. Things are just so broken. Um, but I, I think it's going to piss everybody off, though. I still think it's going to piss everybody off. Mm. For landlords, it's like, you know, especially the interest deductibility, it's going to feel like, you know, you're attacking me. And for renters, it's going to feel like the results are just too 
far away. Maybe it's like journalism, though, Shamsi. You, can never you know you're doing it, it right. It doesn't matter what you do, you're always wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you'll notice the change in language there, though, from Grant Robertson from sustain, sustain moderation to downward pressure on prices. Yeah. And that, that is an interesting move that we've seen only in the last week. I think it'll be interesting with that Adrian All starts using that language as well uh, when the Reserve Bank next talk, talks about this. I think they are saying they're sending a clear message that we should expect house prices to mm. fall, even if it's just in the next couple of months while all investors take a step back and take some breathing room. Do, do you mind that Grant Robertson went back on his word, Tamika? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, he, he, said, he said before the election that, that he uh, sounded emphatic. He said they would be ruling out extensions to the Bright Line test, and this is an extension to the Bright Line test. Does that bother you? I just want them to do what they know they need to do. Mm. Um, and I, I want there to be a massive increase in new supply of housing. I want there to be um, restraints on landlords. I want there to be healthy housing um, for all people. And I want them to make sure that everybody is well housed. And I don't think that is a lot to ask for. Um, I don't care how you do it. And I don't care if it upsets some people because, you know, you've got to weigh that in proportion to, mm. again, the people who will not be sleeping with a roof over their head tonight. And that is a crisis. You know, you walk through Wellington City, you walk through Auckland, it's a crisis and it needs to be treated as such. So, I mean, um, you know, I don't care what you're saying at an, at, an, at an election. I care about what you're doing in the three years and what you're setting my generation up for, uh, up mm. for because we are at a tipping point in the terms of lots of different crises. There's COVID, there's um, the climate crisis, there's housing crisis. Um, so I want to see my leaders being bold and courageous and setting us up for a future that we can actually be able to live mm. in. OK. Well, this will no doubt not be the last time we speak about housing in this uh, parliamentary term. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Timothy Paul, uh, Katie Bradford and Shamabil Yakub. After the break on Q&A, has COVID-19 led to more racism against Asian New Zealanders? A rally organiser is with us next. Hoki mai, welcome back to Q&A. A group of Asian New Zealanders say they are increasingly being targeted in racist attacks. A rally in central Auckland drew hundreds yesterday following similar demonstrations in the United States. Steph Tan is one of the organisers of the Stop Asian Hate March, and she's with us this morning. Tina, welcome to Q&A. Hi, thanks, Jack. In what ways has COVID-19 affected Asian New Zealanders? As a result of COVID-19, have they experienced more racist attacks? Yes, I would say that COVID amplified the racism that was always there. So I don't think it caused it. We just had pervasive racism and COVID brought it up and normalised that you can blame a certain race group for the pandemic. Right. It, it, has that been fuelled by comments from political leaders such as Donald Trump? I believe it has been fuelled by leaders like Trump, but also just because this type of racism was really boiling up and coming to the surface. And of course, with the angst and everyone's mental health, health dropping a lot during the pandemic, perhaps people weren't in the best place and were thinking primarily for themselves, understandably, and then that leads to certain ignorances regarding race. Right. How, how often do Asian New Zealanders experience racism? Personally, growing up in my childhood, I experienced it every single day. And then even in my adolescence, less overt, but still present overtly, and then subtle comments as well. And then I actually have lived overseas for the last several years of my life, but just even hearing of my really close friends having racial attacks, it's really atrocious. Why is that? Why do you, why do you think Asian New Zealanders are targeted in that way? Historically, we have been targeted and just seen on the outside. 
And I think because New Zealand was primarily Pākehā for a while, especially in my upbringing, the schools I went to, I was minority in so many ways. And perhaps the culture was just so unfamiliar to people. Mm. And when children aren't raised in an environment where they celebrate other cultures or learn about them, they just see it as unfamiliar and perhaps as a vulnerable target. The head of one of our spy agencies, Rebecca Kitteridge, was appearing this week in Parliament before a select committee. And she said that there is no doubt white supremacy is increasing in prevalence here in mm. New Zealand and internationally. Mm. Do Asian New Zealanders feel particularly targeted or threatened by that increase? Yes, I honestly did feel scared about what could have happened with the rally yesterday because I wanted it to be the most positive and peaceful celebration where we compassionately raise awareness and I wanted everyone to feel like they were as safe as possible. And so having the police and other wardens to support us was really imperative. But honestly, with racism, it's not just white supremacists that we think about. We actually just think about the everyday normal person who may not be aware of the Asian struggle here. Right. Explain that to me a little bit more, because most of us, you know, we, we look at, for example, I know the, um, the attack that sparked similar demonstrations in the United States last week that a lot of Asian Americans say is an example of the kind of racism they experience, an extreme example. But, Certainly. Yeah, but, but, but I mean, that's obviously at the more extreme end of the kind of things that Asian New Zealanders might experience. Absolutely. So with those extreme events, I think there's this wide perception that they're the lone wolves of society and yeah. that this is not us. But I want to make so clear that this is us. Our society bred that. Extremists don't just go from zero to 100. It's the normalization of everyday racism, whether subtle microaggressions or overt racism, that shows to extremists hey, this is a vulnerable group that can be targeted. OK, as a vulnerable group, do Asian New Zealanders look at the response to the March 15th attacks, which obviously targeted a different minority group in mm -hmm. New Zealand, and draw any sorts of parallels between their experiences or draw any more concerns? Certainly, that was one of the main reasons for the rally. It was to show we're not waiting for a mm. horrific event to happen to us. We've already seen physical, brutal attacks towards Asian people in coronavirus and during the year of coronavirus. Mm. It, for towards Asian New Zealanders last year alone, and there have been more throughout the last decade, but certainly amplified last year. And it does raise concern. We're saying we're not letting any of us be shot or been in or any one of us people be hurt before we realise that this is an issue. It's so much easier to address it now while it's here and not waiting for it to get that bad, because by that time it is too late. What policy changes would help? I think having a call centre where you have people speaking various Asian languages that's widely accessible to people to report any racial crimes is so imperative. And then having that additional layer of criminalisation or penalty towards physical brutal attacks towards Asian people because if someone is saying go back to China while they're getting physically beaten, it's not just your everyday physical attack, which is of course horrible in itself. It is racially motivated and that's horrific in itself and is another layer of crime. Steph Tan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Kua mutu. That is Q&A for this week. Thank you for watching. Ngā mihi kia koutou ngā karere. Thank you for your contributions. Thanks to the Q&A team. Just so you know, we are off next week for Easter Sunday, so we're going to leave you now with the whānau a tāhua at Marae. Kia pai te rānei. Have a good Sunday. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.